In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. And uh, before we get started, I just want to point out that uh, it's a new year. And maybe with the new year, you're considering some new goals. Maybe you're going to start a business. Maybe you're going to change careers. Maybe you're going to finally launch that creative project you have been meaning to launch. If you are considering any of those things, you should try Squarespace because it gives you a powerful and beautiful online platform from which to make your next move known to the world. Go to squarespace.com and make that next move. Use the offer code LONGFORM. Here's the show. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Back for another year. Another year, 2017. Re-upped. Re-upped. We're going to do it. Uh, we got a good, we got a good, a good guest for the first show. Tell you day. what, we're starting strong. Yeah. Terry Gross is on the show this week. Uh, Terry Gross, someone I've been trying to get on the show for quite some time. Not just trying to get on the show, but I feel like I've listened to Terry Gross for so many years. It's one of those guests that... It just feels amazing that she's on this podcast. Yes, uh, I totally agree. I will say that, like, uh, for the first several minutes of this interview, I was basically like kind of stunned. I don't know if I talked. I might not have talked. I might have just kind of blabbered a little bit. But uh, we recorded at her office in Philadelphia uh, at her studio, WHYY. And uh, fun fact that uh, I'm not sure you guys know, she does like almost all of those interviews remotely. I, I was surprised when I learned that. Yeah, what about the one where, uh, what's the guy's name from Kiss? Gene Simmons? Gene, yeah, Gene Simmons walked out totally remote. Huh. I don't know if you can really call that walking out. Isn't that more hanging off on someone? I guess so. He yeah. walked out of wherever he was. He threw his headphones down. He made yeah. a scene. Um, but yeah, it was great. I think she, uh, uh, as a result, does not have uh, guests in her studio very often. And uh, it was fun. It really was. It was like a, it was a thrill. As with 2016, the Long Form Podcast is brought to you in 2017 by MailChimp. They are the sponsors that have made this show possible over the years, and we thank them again in this new year. And now here's Max with Terry Gross. Terry Gross. That's Hello. Me. Hi. Hi, how are you? I am good, and you? Uh, I'm fine. I'm excited. I'm uh, a little nervous. Oh, don't be. I like your podcast a lot. Well, that's very nice of you to say. Uh, that does not change the fact that I'm nervous. I'm still a little nervous, but we're going to work through it. Uh, I'm here at your studio. Yes. In Philadelphia, WHYY. It's very nice of your staff to find time to make this possible. And I know I feel like I should just tell people what I'm looking at. So you've got it's a pretty sparse situation you work with here. You're like in your chair, mm-hmm. your standard chair. My standard chair. You got two phones, red yep. phone. The red phone is the direct line to our executive producer. So if I pick it up, it just automatically rings in his office. So it's just really easy to go. Oh my God, what's the NQ? Or like, where's the next reel? I love that you have a red phone. Yeah, and it's very Kremlin. Yeah, it mm-hmm. is. Um, but the thing that is significant about being here and sitting in the same room as you is that this is not how you normally do your thing. 
Yeah, normally my guests are in here. We send them to the closest studio, usually an NPR affiliate studio in New York, L.A., Chicago, Miami, wherever wherever the guest is. And if there isn't an NPR station where they are, we send them to a commercial studio. And that way we don't have to pay their expenses to come here. <laughs> right. They don't have to take the time to come here because if we had to do all that, I wouldn't have any guests. I was, uh, I was so surprised when I heard that for the first time. Why? I don't know. It's The conversations you have, they're so, uh, you know, intimate that it didn't occur to me that they could possibly be remote. And I've heard you say a couple of times that it's for, like, budgetary reasons. But are there interview reasons that you think it's better to do them remotely? There's a couple of interview things I like about it. I like it either way. There's advantages and disadvantages on both sides. The nice thing about somebody being long distance, I have usually fairly elaborate notes that I want to look at. And when I'm interviewing somebody, I feel like I cannot break eye contact, that they'll think I'm not paying attention. And it's, that means I can't look at my notes as much as I'd like to or go back to the book to find a page like I'd like to. Um, so it's nice to be able to just like really listen intently and have my eyes look at whatever they want to be looking at. But is it hard to really connect with someone without being able to handle any of that body language. Like right now, for example, you're looking at me with a very furrowed brow <laughs> and uh, seem slightly perturbed by this question. But um, how, do you, how do you find that way to connect with someone when you're not in the same space? I've learned that rapport isn't necessarily a function of proximity. Like I've had really intimate interviews with people who are far away and had no rapport with some people who are in the studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe... Rapport can be amplified if the person's in the studio, but you never know. You know, like when somebody's coming here, I feel this responsibility to like wear nicer clothes, <laughs> you know, like comb my hair, like put on some lipstick, which I did because you're here. No, it's a real honor. Thank <laughs> it's, you. Oh, yeah, you're you, welcome. You really should have. You're so welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's just like nice to be re- relieved of all of that. And I'm, I'm kind of an inherently shy, self-conscious person. So when somebody's long distance, like I just don't need to think about any of that. I don't need to think about making a nice like visual impression. And And also it's pure radio. You know, what you hear is what you get. Right. So if somebody wants to tell me something, they have to, like, tell me it in such a way so that it works on radio. I think part of the thing that seems hard to me is, like, getting the energy level right. Like, it's hard to kind of, like, get keyed up over the phone. But maybe that's also part of your show and the reason that it works is that people aren't at a 10. They're at, like, a 7. And it's not quite as... Intense, and so people are able to maybe be more thoughtful than than they would if they feel like they're performing. Okay, so I occasionally use, not to make the show sound like religion or anything, but the confession booth analogy where, and not that I'm Catholic, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm told that in a confession booth and judging from the movies I've seen, you don't see the person you're confessing to, and they don't see you. And I think that allows a certain comfort, you know, that you're not, you're saying something that maybe you're not comfortable saying. You're not, you're not sure if you're ready to say it. And you're not looking the person in the eye. It, so it, it can work either way. And I think basically what it comes down to is like, is the interview going to work or not? Is mm-hmm. the person going to feel comfortable con- or not? Are you going to connect or not? And it can happen face-to-face or in the long distance. What's your definition of like an interview that works? Well, 
first of all, one of the essential ingredients is an interesting person. You know what I mean? And, and not necessarily somebody who's led like a glamorous, exciting life, but somebody who has an interesting inner life, somebody who can express thoughts in an interesting way or has a sense of humor or can tap into emotions or tell you something you don't know. Ideally, in an interview, you find out something that surprises you and that has a nice kind of coherent shape to it so that you feel like you've been through an experience or heard a narrative, but one that wasn't pre-written. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and it's nice when something, just, just something happens, some little surprising spark. You were saying before that, uh, that you're shy. Are you less shy now than when you yeah. started? Yeah, oh, way, way, way less. What was it like when you started? Um, the shyness. I okay. Mean. Well, first of all, when I started, I'm really short. I'm like four eleven. Oh, you look five feet easy to me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> my my stature gets me all the way to five. Um, and when I started interviewing, I was twenty three or twenty four. So I was like, short people tend to look younger when they're young. So people would come in the studio, because this was in Buffalo, and I, I was doing a lot of face-to-face things. People would come in the studio, and they'd give me this look like, when's the adult coming into the room <laughs> is actually going to interview me, you know? And so I'd have to really put on my, like, adult self, <laughs> you know, and and try to make it clear, like, I've read your book. I've seen your mo- I know who you are. Don't panic. <laughs> it's going to work out all right. <laughs> Um, so, like, all that helped me overcome the shyness because I knew that it was my job to reassure them mm-hmm. and that I couldn't afford to be shy because if I was shy, it would just make them more nervous. Does radio seem like a natural place for a shy person to go? I think so because, like we were talking about, you're not being seen. So the self-consciousness that comes with shyness, and to me, self-consciousness and shyness are kind of intertwined inextricably. <laughs> like, you can't untangle them. <laughs> Um, so, you know, a lot of that, um, like you have to just overcome that if you're going to be an interviewer, but you're overcoming it for the interview. It's not like you're facing a big audience of people. It's not like there's a camera that's staring at you and that you have to smile for the camera and look, you know, I, I have the kind of face when I was young, people would come up to me and say, oh dear, what's wrong? (laughs) Are you lost? And... I'd have to say, no, I'm not lost. I'm just lost in thought, like I always am, you know, so. Mm-hmm. When you started to lose that shyness, when you started to figure that out, were there other things that you wanted to do, or was it always radio? I fell in love with radio the moment I started doing it, with the exception of hearing my voice for the first time, which sent me into a panic. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, and that was a pretty big that to overcome, I just love the whole magic of it that, you know, you turn a knob, a voice is on the air, it could be your voice. And at the time I was doing like engineering and hosting and producing and editing. So it was just like one whole big package. And, you know, it was like way more exciting and glamorous than I ever expected in my life. So it was thrilling. And I've met a lot of radio people who seemed to be like biding their time until they could write the great American novel or be on Broadway. And for me, you know, like this was it. I found it. This is this is the plan. This is the, yeah. And when you were making that show, it's called This Is Radio, the, the show in Buffalo. That, that was one of a few shows I did. Did you have a sense of the audience then? Like was part of what you liked about it hearing from people who were listening? 
Okay, that presupposes there was an audience. <laughs> okay, so the, there were four people listening. Did you ever talk to them? Yeah, there, you know, we were, a, we were a college station, an NPR affiliate college station, and I was there in like 74, 75, and it didn't have a really large audience. At least the shows I did didn't have a really large audience. I never got a sense of a whole lot of feedback from listeners, which is probably just as well because I was so... Is amateurish the right word? Like, not good? <laughs> Might be a better word. What do you mean? Oh, I, first of all, I think I talk like this. And and then also, I was just learning my craft. You know, it's not like I'd went to journalism school. I hadn't. It's not like I'd had any radio experience before I was on the air. I had no training whatsoever. So I was learning on the air, which is a great experience for me. No better way to learn. Right. But there's plenty of better ways to listen. <laughs> Can we talk about interviewing for a little bit? Sure. I got lots of questions. Uh, I have some like very pragmatic how you do this questions. Okay. So you were saying one of the things that sort of is like the hallmark of a good interview is that it unspools as a story, but not necessarily one that was pre-written. Do you have a structure in your mind when you walk in to sit down to do this? Yes. And is it ever strayed from or do you hit your structure every time? Oh, gosh. No, it's often strayed from. And- how do you know, okay, now is the time where we're going to take a left turn? Okay, so I come in with a set of notes, and my notes are usually around three-ish pages of double-spaced questions. And I don't write out the questions because I don't want to sound like I'm reading my questions. And also because I don't have the time to write them out. <laughs> Because I'm doing a daily show and there's like never enough time. I'm always just kind of half prepared and half just kind of hoping for the best. So I, I write out like the key. Wait a second. You feel unprepared all the time? Yeah, because, you know, I, I do an interview four days a week. And only part of my job is preparing the interviews. So, you know, I'm also like writing and editing copy. I'm thinking, you know, I'm involved in the process of who else are we going to book? I'm constantly meeting with people on the show. There's emails to check. There's long-range goals to have. There's meetings to have. There's phone calls. To, I mean, there's just like all these other things. So I have my questions, like the key points written out. I try to do it in an order where there seems to be some kind of narrative flow so that you're getting a sense of like hearing a story unfold as opposed to answers to a questionnaire. Mm -hmm. And it seems sometimes like particularly important in journalism, nonfiction book kind of interviews where you're dealing with history or with an issue and the information has to be metered out in such a way so that everything builds on everything else and a listener can make sense of things in a logical order. So, okay, I was just told this, and this thing makes sense now that I know what you just told me, and this next thing makes sense because you've just told me two things before that. Mm -hmm. So a structure becomes really important. But at the same time, somebody's going to tell you something that you were unprepared to hear, and you have to, if it's interesting, follow that and then somehow get back to a structure that works. Or just keep following. If they're leading me to a place that's more interesting than the one I've thought of, I'm just going to keep following. And is that instinct, that ability to decide in the moment, is that like second nature for you now? It's always hard. I mean, I'm, I'm used to doing it, but that's part of the craft of interviewing is like coming up with a good structure and then remembering to listen. And then constantly, you know, one of the constant distractions 
that keeps me from paying 100% attention to what's being said in an interview is the part of me that's thinking, is this something I want to follow up on? Do I want to go back to what I had planned to ask next? Am I heading in a completely different direction? So there's always part of me that's having this like debate with myself about what to do next while I'm trying to hear and process what's being said to me. Is that something that like you feel like you are now currently as good at as you will ever be? Or is it a thing that you like, keep getting better at? Part of my philosophy of life is that you have to live with a certain amount of delusion. <laughs> and part of the delusion I live with is that like maybe from experience I, I'm getting a little bit better. But then the other part of me, the more overpowering part of me, is the pessimistic part that says like it's going to be downhill from here. <laughs> You know? So what you're telling me is you're getting worse. I don't know. <laughs> I, it's like I, you know, I try not to judge myself too much because I'm so self-judgmental that I don't want to overjudge and get into you know too much of the am I better than I was yesterday or not. Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for just a second and uh, tell you a little bit about our sponsors this week. First up. Squarespace, our old friends at Squarespace, and uh, it's a new year. It's a new you, and uh, it's time to finally do that project, whether it's uh, getting a business off the ground or some sort of online portfolio. Maybe you have an idea, and you're not really ready to put it on the internet yet, but you want to put like a landing page so at least you know that at some point you're going to put it on the internet. Squarespace is the best way to do it. Here are a couple reasons why. One, award-winning templates. Everything looks beautiful. Two, You don't need to know a lick of code. Everything's just drag and drop. It all just works with Squarespace. In the rare event that it does not just work, they've got 24-7 award-winning customer support. You cannot lose with Squarespace. So go start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LONGFORM to get 10% off your first purchase. That's offer code LONGFORM for 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. Also sponsoring the show this week... Blue Apron, and I'm not sure when you're listening to this, but uh, if you, like me, are a little hungry right now, let me wet your whistle with the offerings from Blue Apron. First of all, uh, you should know that Blue Apron's food, it, it's legit. This is good stuff. Here, here are some, uh, some things you should know. The beef is raised humanely, the chickens are free-range, the pork is raised naturally, and the seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. You cannot do better than that, my friends. Here are some uh, options for January, some things that are on the menu. Seared pork chops with farro and cranberry chutney. Delicious. Spaghetti squash and marinara with mushrooms and garlic knots. Mmm. Spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes with cabbage and furikake. I don't know if I said that right, but I'm going with it. Blue Apron. You should check it out. Here's how to do it. You can get three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash longform. That's blueapron.com slash longform. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Let's talk about your ground rules. Yeah. You have these very specific ground rules that you tell people before the interview starts. What are those ground rules? Okay. The first is we are recording. We're not live. Feel free to take advantage of that. And then I define what that means. I actually want you to <laughs> just, you know what? I think I would like to just hear the ground rules, like uh, you're going to uh, you're gonna interview me. Okay. So 
we're going to be recording this interview, and it's going to be on... I just want to say your whole posture just changed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to be recording this interview, and it's, it's, which means it's not going to run today. And then I tell you, like, it's likely to run tomorrow, or I'd say it's going to run, like, Thursday, or, or maybe next week, or maybe we don't know the date yet. So since it's not going to air today, stay away from words like yesterday or today or tomorrow because yesterday won't be yesterday because today will be yesterday, tomorrow when this runs. So stick with earlier this week or recently or on you know December 31st or whatever. Also, since we are recording, if you get trapped in the middle of an answer or you just thought of a better, clearer, more concise way of putting it, or you realize what it is you really meant to say, you can back up to an earlier part of that answer and say it again. But if you do that, start at the beginning of a sentence so we can make a clean edit. And then I'll tell them, if you hear me get a fact wrong, interrupt me and correct me. That way, I can say it again and get it right, and we can edit out the error and prevent it from going on the air, and it won't end up on Wikipedia <laughs> incorrectly. And then I'll tell them, too, if I ask you anything too personal, let me know, and I'll move on to something else. Now, I do that because I never know where somebody's going to draw the line between what's public and what's private. And by telling them that they can let me know if something's too personal, I'm communicating to them that I respect their privacy and I'm also giving myself the license to ask anything, knowing that they can tell me that that's too personal, and we've agreed I'll respect that. And sometimes I'll even, in spite of the fact I've said that in the, before the interview started, I'll preface a real personal question often by saying, I just want to remind you, this is the kind of question I was <laughs> referring to when I said if I ask you anything too personal, because this is kind of personal, so you just guide me whether this is okay or not. Because, uh, you know, my goal isn't to get somebody waking up in the middle of the night and seeing like, shit, my mother's going to hate me for the rest of my life because of what I just said. You know? Uh, mm -hmm. On the other hand, we're not turning the guest into our editor. So the rules that I set are very finite. Right after I've asked you the question, you can tell me it's too personal. That doesn't mean you get to edit the tape afterwards and, you know, call me or have your agent call, you know, or, or your publicist call our right. producer and say, we've decided to take out that answer and this, <laughs> this answer, and we didn't like that question. No, this that's is, not. This isn't a collaborative process. No, not in the edit. Do you feel like anyone ever comes on with, like, prepared material? Yeah. I mean, particularly in the past, when authors were encouraged to have their talking points and were often sent to interview seminars to learn how to be interviewed. And they were told to say, as I said in my book, insert title published by <laughs> insert publisher. And it was just so hard to get people to, I mean, I'd finally say to them, and this is what I tell them now also, like the name of your book is going to be mentioned more times than you're going to hear it mentioned. So we got you covered. Because mm -hmm. we're going to add the introduction, the back announce, the breaks. And then if necessary, if they keep mentioning it, I'm going to say to them, I'm going to be really honest here. We're going to cut out a lot of your mentions of the name of the book because it honestly is going to sound like a sales pitch. Mm -hmm. So you could just let it go. So one of the things I'm hearing you say is part of the way that you get people comfortable is by 
doing as much sort of billboarding at the beginning as you can. Like, this is kind of what's going to happen. This is what you should expect. But but I'm not going over the questions. I'm not saying, here's what we're going to talk about. Um, I'm going to cover this, this, and this. Um, though I will do that occasionally when somebody, if I can sense that somebody's really rattled and that they're nervous and they need to know something of what to expect. Mm-hmm. And I'll just, you know, give them some sense of it just to relax them. How much of that is about them and how much of that is about like the product? Oh, it's kind of synonymous. The show's going to be good if the interview's good. The interview's going to be good if they're comfortable being themselves. And and that's sometimes something I have to convince people of that their job is to be themselves. Cuz like sometimes like sometimes for instance, I think people are nervous because they've heard famous people on the show and they think that they have to be sound like those famous people and I have to convince them just like just be yourself. There's one group of people that don't get the ground rules, right? Yes, politicians. Why is that? A couple of reasons. First of all, I feel people who have made it into elected office or who are running for it are so good at manipulating the press. I don't need to give them any more tools than they already have. And people in the world of politics, in my limited experience, come in with their talking points. Basically, they know what they're going to tell you before they've walked in the room. Mm And if they tell you anything that they didn't intend to tell you, I don't want to give them a chance to retract it. And in terms of personal questions, there are a lot of people in elected office or trying to get into elected office whose personal lives are inconsistent with the policies that they're trying to get the rest of us to live by. And if I sense that kind of inconsistency, I'll want to ask about it without them waving me off and saying that's too personal. Because if you're legislating people's personal lives, then there's a certain amount of your personal life that relates to that subject area of legislation that I think perhaps we have a right to know about. But the truth is I rarely interview politicians. Yeah, do you like it? I don't very much because of the whole talking points thing. But also... I think if you're interviewing people in politics, you owe it to your audience to know enough to be able to decipher the truth from the bullshit. And because I'm not a beat reporter, and because I'm preparing basically the day or the night before, I can't know that much. Mm-hmm. You know, I spent most of my time like, you know, reading books and watching movies and listening to music for interviews and, you know, reading the newspaper, but I'm not following that individual politician day in and day out. And it's easy to pull the wool over my eyes, and I don't want that to happen. So I'm better off not talking to them, though I will occasionally make exceptions. You made an exception in uh, 2014. You had Hillary Clinton on the show. Yes. And And uh, she was at that point not in office and hadn't announced. Now, it was pretty clear she was probably going to announce, but she was in that officially. <laughs> right. She was technically like on book tour, right? It exactly. Was, it was supposed to be about the exactly. book. And it's interesting to hear you say that part of your apprehension around interviewing politicians is familiarity with policy on a sort of day-to-day level because an issue that has been a focus of yours and in your heart for 40 years is gay rights in this country. And, and you had an exchange with her around gay marriage and the legalization of gay marriage that I remember 
at the time being this, you know, kind of took over the internet for a day or two is what people wanted to talk about. Uh, maybe we can listen to it for a second and then uh, I want to talk to you about it. Oh, sure. Great. So that's one for you changed your mind. <laughs> just you know, I really I have to say, I think you are um, being just, very persistent, but you are playing with my words and playing with what is such an I'm just trying to clarify issue. so I can understand. No, I don't think you are trying to clarify. <laughs> I think you're trying to say that, you know, I used to be uh, opposed and now I'm in favor and I did it for political reasons. And that's just flat wrong. So let me just state what I feel like you are implying and repudiate it. I have a strong record. I have a great commitment to this issue. And I am proud of what I've done and the progress we're making. Yeah, I'm saying, I'm sorry. I I just want to clarify what I was saying. No, I was saying that you maybe really believe this all along, but, you know, believed in gay marriage all along, but felt for political reasons, America wasn't ready yet and you couldn't say it. That's what I was thinking. No, that, no, that is not true. Okay. I did not grow up even imagining gay marriage. And I don't think you probably did either. How did you feel right after that about that exchange? I felt unsatisfied in the sense that I didn't really feel like I got a totally clear answer. Um, But I thought it was an interesting exchange. I thought it was the most dynamic part of the interview, just in terms of, quote, radio. Mm -hmm. You know, because Hillary Clinton is incredibly smart and incredibly astute about policy and, and, and all of that. But I wanted to hear something like just like you know more personal more reflective and it's a little bit difficult as it is with most politicians to get them off talking points and so like that was something that I felt was like unexpected mm-hmm. um and so you know we left that whole ex- exchange in do you feel any different about it now do you think well here's here was the revelation to me that went viral before it was even up on our website. Hmm. So how did that happen? I think I know how that happened. And this to me is like the most amazing part of the interview. Um, I'm pretty sure that it's a group called America Rising that was responsible for making that viral. This is a group that, um, I read about this in the Atlantic Magazine after the interview, like long after the interview. So America Rising is a group, you know, a right-wing group that I think was founded by Romney's campaign manager from 2012, Hmm. Matt Rhodes. And so the group, the way I understand it from reading about it, one of their goals was to defeat Hillary and to follow her around on the book tour and take information and sound bites and quotes from credible mainstream sources and use it against her. So I think through that group, and I might be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure of it, through that group, that excerpt was put up on a site, and it started going viral. Um, And it was just because people follow everything Hillary so carefully, and because every word she says is put under a microscope, and because at this time every word she said was being analyzed, well, like, does this mean she's ready for prime time or not? Does this right. mean she's going to run or not? What clues does this give us about what kind of candidate she'll be? Everybody was examining that. Like, so, you know, what does it mean? Now, I thought it went viral maybe because, you know, gay people felt like, well, what does this say about her position on gay rights? But if my understanding of how it went viral is correct, it went viral because people on the right were trying to use something 
that would alienate liberals against her, would alienate gay people against her. And I think that's kind of really fascinating political jujitsu that helps me understand why politicians like Hillary Clinton aren't necessarily terribly forthcoming in an interview. Hmm. You really tied that back together there. <laughs> there was one more thing about that exchange which I wanted to ask you about, which is sure. kind of a general interviewing question, which was, it felt to me listening to that, and I, I actually listened to that like live in a car, and it felt to me like um, you had a pretty strong opinion on that topic. Like, like you were pretty sure that she had been personally for gay marriage, but had decided that it was not politically expedient. Right. Well, here's what I really regret about that exchange. And I'm glad you're asking me about it. I wished I was clearer because it was one of those things where, where I was reacting to what was happening in the moment and you know, trying to listen, like, listen really intently to, to like, I'm not sure, has she answered that or not? Is that really an answer or is that an evasion? And I, so I was, and I, I, in listening back to it myself and in reading the transcript myself, I wish I had been clearer in expressing what I was trying to say. And I think that's part of the reason why you could read both of us any which way, mm -hmm. you know, because I think I'm not as clear as I wish I was. And I think she's a little evasive. So you put those two together and it's like, Oh, what's being said here? Yeah, it's kind of a weird stew. It's a weird stew. So I'll, I'll tell you what I was trying to say. Yeah. Um, that sometimes if, if you want to be an effective leader, you have to have people who are ready to hear what you're going to say mm -hmm. or where you want to lead them. And I think part of being a good leader is judging when when the time is right for a certain position. I don't think that's necessary. That can be a cynical thing. I don't think it's necessarily a cynical thing. So I didn't necessarily mean that as a negative thing right. when I said that perhaps you were for marriage equality beforehand, but you didn't feel like the time that the people were ready yet. There's something so fascinating to me. I, I, that makes total sense. And hearing you say that uh, totally reframes the way that I heard that exchange. And it's uh, there's something just fascinating about thinking about you and Hillary Clinton talking and miscommunicating, kind of. Right. Tell like me how of, you heard it. Cause kind you, of talking past each other a little bit. You know bit. her. And you did the Hillary podcast with her. So um, well, I, I'd love to hear what you thought. This was long before I was doing that. But yeah. um, it felt to me like a rare instance where you were framing an opinion as a question. Right. Like, you knew what you thought, but because it's an interview show, you had to ask a question. And so you asked an opinion as a question or, or asked your belief as a question. And um, it just seemed like a really different moment than you normally have on the show. You mean of, of, of having that kind of tense exchange? Yeah, yeah. And like a tense exchange in which I knew it was something you really cared about. Yeah. That felt different. Well, usually if I'm talking about gay issues with somebody, chances are they're gay. And they're not going <laughs> to be evasive about, you know, things pertaining to being gay, you know, or to gay rights. Uh, unless I'm talking to somebody about gay rights who's clearly on the other side and they've backed the legislation you know, against gay marriage, and I'll know exactly where I stand. But with Hillary, I felt like she she was just uncomfortable 
being like totally clear. And then, as I said before, I felt like as I was trying to get her to be clearer, my language wasn't clear enough itself. Mm -hmm. And so we both kept confusing each other. And I think we both could have done a better job. How do you do that thing where you bounce from music to journalism to politics to movies? Like, how do, how do you spread yourself across all of those different conversations? Is that something you've learned to do, or is that just kind of who you are? Um, I think it's probably who I am. I mean, I'm interested in a lot of stuff. I'm not an expert on any one thing. You know, like some people, like my husband, for instance, he's an expert on jazz. Like he, it's probably, I feel like he knows everything (laughs) (laughs) there is to know about jazz. And because he's a a great writer, he he can, you know, write great things about the music he loves or other pop culture. And I don't know that much about any one thing. I can't hold forth about any one subject, but I'm deeply interested in a lot of different things. I'm, I'm very passionate about movies and music and books and I want to understand the world around me, you know, so, and I actually really enjoy learning things and enjoy hearing people talk and being, as we were talking about before, you know, a little shy and insecure and having overcome a lot of that, but still having that be like at the core of me, having ways to engage with people about the things I really love, especially the people who make those things is, it's just always thrilling. And at this point, do you basically trust that your audience is just going to kind of come with you wherever you go? Well, two things about that. One, there's people who who say, you know, I trust you if you're doing an interview, I'm going to give it a few minutes because you're going to make it interesting, right? Mm -hmm. That may or may not be true, but I appreciate the trust. But there's also the people who go like, I am so not interested in this subject, I'm not going to listen, and they'll just immediately go someplace else. But that's okay in the sense that there's other people for whom that interview, like, that's their thing, you know, and, like, they are so thrilled. It means so much to them to hear that author about this book that they love, that they're going to be, you know, that that passion and that connection compensates for the other person who said, I don't care. (laughs) Right. And it's worth it to me to have people passionately... I'm okay with the idea that we're not going to get the majority audience the majority of the time, but to connect in a special way with with different people at different times, I think is one of the things a show like ours can hope to achieve. Can we go back in time a little bit? Sure. I have some more questions about um, earlier points in your career. Yeah. So you came from Buffalo, got hired at WHYY. Yeah, and I grew up in Brooklyn, went to school in Buffalo. Right. Grew up in Brooklyn, went to school in Buffalo. From what I understand, very desperate to not go back to Brooklyn after Buffalo. Well, Ships at Bay was great when I was growing up there. There was this, like, huge cohort of people my age. I mean, so there was one street corner in particular that would always have, like, a mob of kids my age. You know, (laughs) we would just, like, hang out there. And it was great. Um, And I grew up in an apartment building. I had friends on the second floor, the then the next building over on the third floor and two buildings over on the sixth floor. You know what I mean? I just, I could just take an elevator and see friends. So, so it was great. And I went to a great high school, but I didn't want the life that the adults I knew in Sheepshead Bay had. Mm-hmm. You know, or I should say the women I knew. Because the women, the adult women I knew in Sheepshead Bay were full-time 
mothers and homemakers or they worked in the traditional women's professions, you know, teacher, nurse, clerical work, secretary, working in your husband's office. Not that there's anything wrong with any of that, but it's, it's not what I wanted. And so you felt like you had to get out to find what you wanted? Yeah, I, I want, I, yeah. What did you want? I didn't know. That's why I felt so lucky to find radio, because I didn't know. For a while, I thought I wanted to write. And then once I got to college, I realized that I was a better reader than I was a writer, and that I didn't have stories to tell. You know, like I interview all these writers who say, oh, the story just told itself. The (laughs) characters speak to me. Never, ever did I have a character speak to me or a story that told itself. Do you think that's because... Uh, you weren't, like, out in the world? No, I think it's because that's not my brain. (laughs) (laughs) And it never will be my brain. (laughs) It's kind of comforting to know your brain that well when you're, like, 18 or 19. Well, I I just noticed the absence (laughs) of that, you know, those characters. And and I realized, like, my writing is just not going to measure up to my standards as a reader. And then I was just distracted by all this other stuff. It was like, you know, the late 60s and early 70s. And like, you know, (laughs) the world was just exploding. So, um, you know, there was plenty of other stuff going on. Um, And I I, I spent very little time actually in the classroom when I was in college. Didn't you take some time off and like drive cross country? Yeah, hitch cross country. (laughs) (laughs) Slightly riskier. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, did you, uh, were you like asking people questions all the time then? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. Um, questions like, is it safe to be here? <laughs> questions like right. that. But not like, tell me about your life. No, 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 I really don't think so. Do you have the instinct and just didn't ask or it just wasn't where you were at? I think I was too confused to, I mean, I, I, w- I guess I would ask a little bit. Um, I mean, because we were hitchhiking with strangers, so of course you want to know a little bit about them. Yeah, I think kind of what I'm asking is, like, were you like a great conversationalist when you were 18 and hitchhiking across country? No, well, I doubt it. I really <laughs> doubt it. It's it's something, you know, becoming an interviewer brought out a side of me that I'm not sure I knew I had, but that I'm really glad I found. So it, it was like, it was uh, it was like random? What, find it, becoming an interviewer? Yeah. It was kind of luck. When I got out of college, I had a friend, a roommate, who um, had just come out, and her lover was a producer of the Lesbian Feminist Show on the NPR college affiliate. And so her lover was going to move from the feminist show, which she'd worked on, to the Lesbian Feminist Show, and consequently there was an opening on the feminist show, and my roommate said, why don't you audition for it? And that was when? What year? It was 73 or 74. 73 or 74, and then you were here by 75. Yeah. That's a pretty quick, like, jump to a major market and start hosting. At, the point, at that point, the show was like three hours, right? Fresh air? It was three hours, five days a week. Three hours, five days a week. So you'd been in Buffalo doing feminist radio for like... Two years? Well, I started off on the feminist show. I did that for a year. Then I thought, oh, I'm tired of doing like women and, like women in sports, right. women in divorce, women. And so um, I did another show, which was even more narrow. <laughs> it was called Signal to Noise. 
as in the signal-to-noise ratio, and it was about artists who worked with technology, particularly electronic technology. Okay. It's a pretty exciting (laughs) and narrow topic. Slightly niche? Yes, slightly niche. So I did that briefly until I realized, wow, I've really painted myself into a corner. And then I hosted uh, an afternoon magazine format show called This Is Radio that was on three hours a day, five days a week, and it's the show that Fresh Air was initially patterned on. The program director from Buffalo had moved to Philadelphia Ah. and started a show patterned on the show that I had ended up co-hosting. Oh, that makes sense. But that show pre-existed me hosting it for for years. And so... And so he already knew me just a little bit. Right. And my co-host was also the station manager and the person who hired me in Philadelphia had been that station manager's program director. So that was very helpful in getting hired here. That feels like a break. I mean, it, it was ma- a huge break. It makes a lot of sense that uh, that there was like some inner workings behind it, but still that feels like a, a pretty big jump. Were you? What, 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 but I should say, this is a major market station. It was a kind of quiet classical music station at the time that did not have a huge audience. Okay. So um, we have a pretty big audience in Philadelphia now at, at WHYY where we reproduce fresh air. It was pretty small then. A thing that I don't know that I've ever heard you talk about is what your ambition was like at that time. Like, were you super ambitious? Did you want to become Terry Gross? My ambition was let me stay on the air and keep doing this. And then when I started doing a three-hour show five days a week, my ambition was let me keep doing this and survive. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like way too much time for anyone. Um, yeah, that sounds totally insane. Yeah, and it was before Danny. I worked on the show a couple of years by myself before Danny came. I, Danny's our executive producer. And so once he came, it started to be kind of fun. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, doing this with a partner is like so much better than doing it by yourself. You guys went nationals in 1985? We went national in 87. National in 87? Yeah. We, first, I we had a weekly wrong. national edition in 85. Okay. And then it became a daily national show in 87. Was that the goal? Like, I, I'm just trying to... No. Un- no. No. I think it was probably Bill Seamring, who was the station manager at WHYY, and who is also famous for being the creator of All Things Considered at NPR and for writing the first NPR mission statement, which is still read at radio conventions and conferences. It's still read on radio podcasts. It's still inspirational. I think it was Bill who suggested that maybe it was time to go national. But that wasn't something that was on your screen. Um, I loved the idea when he suggested it, though it terrified me. But no, I never really thought like, I don't know that I had that kind of faith in myself. You didn't think you were good at this? I decided I was good enough to keep me on the air, but I you know, I didn't I didn't see myself as having a national show, but once the idea was brought up, I found it like you know, really appealing was and it, terrifying. Yeah, was it daunting at all? It was daunting. The, the half hour show wasn't that daunting, but once we started looking at a daily show, I remember coming back from a vacation and thinking, how do I talk them out of this? 
It's, just, it's like this is going to be so hard and so <laughs> frightening. There is so much work to be done. I couldn't imagine because we had to like hire a much bigger staff. We had to build a new studio. We had to find contributors. We had to build a new control room. We had to create uh, fiber optic lines between New York and, and Washington and and Washington and Philadelphia. And I mean, it's not like I was doing that all myself, but still – it was this like huge, just undertaking, and it felt like starting a Broadway show or something. Where you know, it just felt. Was it more energizing or more daunting? It was both. It was both. I'd say the the stress level felt, you know, pretty high. And the first year I hosted the show, I'd spend my weekends. My TV was in the bedroom at the time. I lived in a small place. So I, I would spend my, my, my weekend nights on the bed screening videos and looking at books. <laughs> so Sounds like an awesome time. Oh, God. So I'd be like, just like surrounded by piles of stuff <laughs> with like the video going. And, and um, I remember saying something to my husband like, um, but I know someday I'll look back on this time and think those were the days. And he looked at me and he said, you're crazy. <laughs> because it was just so damn hard. So do you do you, uh, do you now feel like those were the days? No, I feel like thank god those days are beyond, you know, behind me. <laughs> like life is so much better now. Why? Why is it better now? Yeah. I was doing 10 interviews a week. Yeah, and that is bonkers. It was bonkers. And um and the show How do you was, make ten interviews a week good? It, I mean, I just had I had no life for a while, and and it's like slowly, slowly, slowly. And the producers didn't. Eat, I mean, the producers were working incredibly hard. We had a smaller staff, so producers would like they'd find the guest, they'd book the interview, they'd edit the tape every day. I mean, the well, there was also associate producers who helped them edit the tape, but. Uh, I mean, but it was it was crazy. Everybody, including Danny, had like way, way, way too much to do. Once this became like a well-oiled machine that it is now, uh, and you had enough people that you didn't have to spend your Saturday nights like watching TV and reading books at the same time. Uh, and once you had done, you know, I, I think you're at like thirteen or fourteen thousand interviews at this point. I'm not counting. I have no idea. <laughs> Every so often we're asked how many, and so, like, Daniel try to do the math, but who knows? When you've done this at this level for as long as you have, it brings up some questions. Here's some questions I have yeah. about uh, current, ear- earliest possible 2017 Terry Gross. Uh, do you ever get nervous? What makes me nervous is usually feeling like I wish I had more time to prepare. Like, I don't have enough time to have structured this as carefully as what I would have liked or to think through my questions as much as I would have liked. You know, sometimes I haven't fully processed. You know, I've just finished reading the book or, you know, reading the articles or whatever, and I'm still trying to process what does it mean? What do I want to know? And I'm trying to, like, assimilate the language that I've just learned because every subject has its own language. Mm-hmm. And to assimilate what a, what the information I've learned, and to try to take the measure of the person who I've been I'm about to interview, so I'm still assimilating that as I'm absorbing <laughs> what they're telling me, and um, 
that's what makes me nervous is just feeling if I only had more time. But you don't get like starstruck? Not so much. I've met, when I say met, I mean not really because I'm usually not literally meeting them. I'm just talking with them. But I've done that so many times with a lot of really famous people. So the fame part doesn't really throw me. And also the most famous people aren't necessarily the most interesting people. Um, and they're not even necessarily the most talented people. What throws me sometimes in terms of the individual is just if I'm in awe of them personally. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean th- that they're that famous, but that I'm just so overwhelmed by their talent. Is a byproduct of that uh, not wanting to like fangirl out? Oh, I really try not to fangirl out because I, I kind of learned it makes people uncomfortable. I mean, I try to express before the interview my appreciation of and gratitude for the work and to let people know, especially when I'm really passionate about it, what it means to me, but without getting too absorbed in that, because especially with very famous people, like, they have fans. Like, they, you, <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to be they one. They don't need, they don't necessarily need another fan. They need to feel confident that they're in the hands of a professional who will deal with them in a way that won't be, you know, embarrassing or make them look bad or make them, you know, make them unnecessarily uncomfortable. Another thing uh, that I wondered about, given that you have done so many interviews and, you know, Terry Gross is kind of like shorthand for some people now. Um, and, I wonder if you ever feel like you're playing the role of Terry Gross. And here's my, here's why I ask. I rewatched that short you did with Mike Birbiglia. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Where like you're you're like interviewing him, and then like you guys go get coffee afterwards, and you keep interviewing him, and then like you guys are like Robin Banks, and you're still interviewing him. Um, and like you were really good in it. Thank you. You were a good actor. Thank you. But you were just playing Terry Gross. And it made me wonder, like, do you ever feel like you're just, like, playing the role of Terry Gross? The only time I feel that way is when I'm, say, at certain events where people are coming to meet Terry Gross. And I feel like I have to measure up <laughs> <laughs> to being the person that they expect to meet. And, you know, they're they're expecting to meet. I, I, I don't know. Do you ever have this feeling where, like. No one's ever expecting to meet me. I don't have that feeling. <laughs> okay, well. You know, it's like it's like sometimes I'm just walking on the street, like with my like "Are you lost?" face on, <laughs> and and someone will recognize me and say, "Oh, are you Terry Gross?" And I'll say, "Yes, I am." And I feel like, "Oh, I have to be a professional, you know, of self. I have to be somebody worthy of being met, as opposed to like the person who's just like walking in a daze, trying not to trip over my own two feet." You know. <laughs> but you don't feel that way when you're doing the show. No, and I'm feeling no. I just feel perfectly like myself. It's so it's so much a part of who I am. I mean, I spend most of my waking life doing one thing or another related to the show. So, if I was being phony in my show self, I would be a totally phony person. I mean, like it is in so many ways who I am. It's just that you know, a lot of the times I'm just I'm just kind of like turned off. I'm just like walking around in a in a daze, maybe even just thinking of questions for the next interview. Like you feel more, do you feel more yourself when you're doing the show than when you're not doing the show? I think I probably have a, a, a professional self and a private self that are the same person, but like slightly different. 
And um, I think I'm probably more secure in my professional self than I am in my private self. And I have a feeling that's true of a lot of people and perhaps particularly of women. Hmm. Um, but, you know, in my professional work, I've, you know, people haven't given me awards for <laughs> for being my private self. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, people have told me that the show's okay, right? And I really like doing it and I'm I'm fully committed to it and I'm totally engaged when I'm doing interviews. And in my private self, I always feel like I'm kind of like stumbling around <laughs> I've never had like real goals in life outside of you know figuring out how to get the show national once we were committed to doing it. Um, I don't know what I want to do or you know how there's just so much I like I don't know. I can never <laughs> see into the future. So like the private me is always like what you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that hasn't changed. Privateary isn't feeling like a little bit more like honor shit lately. I feel more secure than I used to, that's for sure. But, you know, there's still, like, one of the reasons why I'm an interview is, like, I have a lot more questions than answers. I kind of find that hard to believe. Although, I mean, like, I trust you. It's just kind of hard for me to imagine you bumbling. <laughs> for those listening at home, uh, Terry just rolled her eyes. Okay, here's here's <laughs> a, here's a, um, uh, a thing I read in your book, uh, which relates to what we're talking about, and I'm going to read it to you. Yeah. And then you can tell me um, your answer. Okay. I often ask my guests about what they consider to be their invisible weaknesses and shortcomings. I do this because these are the characteristics that define us no less than our strengths. What we feel sets us apart from other people is often the thing that shapes us as individuals. So what are your weaknesses and shortcomings? Okay. So I will say, first of all, that's a question I would never ask anyone. <laughs> I wouldn't. And, and, and I, you wrote it in your book that you ask them, but I don't ask them in that way. Ah, so I won't. I won't come out and say like, "Tell us what makes you weak." My invisible weaknesses. Yeah, tell me yes. your invisible weaknesses <laughs> that you've been working so hard to cover up all these years because you don't <laughs> want to be vulnerable any more vulnerable than you already are. No, but what I will do is <laughs> say to people, "So you were sick as a kid, like, how did that affect you? Did it make you feel more vulnerable? Did you feel like?" you would be more easily hurt? Did you stay inside and read more? Did people pick on you? Did you get sick a lot? Did you feel like that was gonna hold you back? You know what I mean? I'll mm -hmm. just, um, uh, I, I'll look at something that I would figure would be somebody's vulnerability or weakness and ask them about it in a way just to help understand what shaped them, but the reason why I wouldn't ask it the way you just asked it, forgive me for saying No, that. that's fine. Please. <laughs> is because I don't see what the percentage is in asking somebody to just say, and let me list my vulnerabilities for you <laughs> in case you haven't already noticed what they are. Well, I think part of the reason I teased that out was because I read it on the train coming down here, and I was like, oh, that seems so easy. I'll just ask that. That's great. <laughs> I did not do that. Well, let me ask you a different question. Then. Go ahead. You were on the cover of the book. Yes. Barely. Barely. Like barely visible. Yes. It's like a black cover and you are wearing black and you could see like maybe a quarter of your face. And as I prepared for this, um, I went back and, and, you know, you have this story you like to tell about being profiled in Philadelphia magazine. And the whole story was kind of about um, 
how no one felt like they knew you. Even people you worked with didn't feel like they knew you. And then your mom read it and was like, how could you tell them so much? Yeah. Um, but even that is, is a rarity. Even that article is a rarity. Like there's really not a lot of you out there. And even when you are writing a book, there's barely like a lot of you out there. It's like a quarter of your face on the cover of your own book. It seems like that's changing a little bit. Yeah, it is. Like there was a big profile in the New York Times Magazine and you've done a couple of other interviews. You finally let me come down here and talk to you, which I've been trying to do for- Ask me about my weaknesses. For a long time (laughs) and just say, what are your weaknesses? (laughs) Um, Why are you more interested now in letting people get to know you? Well, a few reasons. It's an interesting question. Um, one is that I think I've grown more comfortable with myself. Like, I am who I am, and, you know, for better or worse, that's who I am. And also, I enjoy people talking about themselves, and um, I enjoy, you know, radio shows and podcasts in which people reflect on their craft and reflect on their lives. So I figured well, maybe it's time to allow myself to participate in that from the opposite side. Was there something that you were worried people would figure out before? Um, Well, I always felt that as an interviewer, I didn't want people to have me typed and to think like, well, you believe this, therefore you're unfair when you're asking about that. Or you experience this, therefore you're going to have a bias about that. I wanted to be kind of neutral, you know, so that you could, if you needed to project something onto me to make your listening experience better, go ahead, project it. I'm going to be, you know, right, I'm that- not going to reveal too much of who I am. And um, and also because I wanted the, the attention really to be on the guest and not on me. Mm-hmm. And I thought another way of doing that was for me to, you know, always shine the light on them and to remain pretty much out of the picture outside of the prompting. That makes total sense to me. It's also uh, helpful. It's a helpful thing if if you also don't want to reveal very much of yourself or say, like, put your whole face on the cover of your own book. Yeah, I, I worked hard to not get my face on the cover <laughs> of the book. I can tell you several things I did <laughs> to not get my face on the cover of the book. So I guess that's my question is, was it just because it would allow for fresh air to be better? I'm also pretty private. Why Why do you think you're getting less private now? It might be a function of age, too. I don't know. Uh, I'm not, like, starting my career from scratch now. Do you know what I mean? I've been yeah. around long enough, enough that people have their predetermined opinion of me already. So I'm not at the point where I'm like building, I'm not starting to build the trust or starting to build a public persona. So I feel like, well, maybe I can allow myself to relax a little bit more about that kind of thing. And just, and also the standards in journalism are changing. Like everything about journalism and interviewing has changed so much since I started. You know, people are, are, are sharing so much more about themselves, even in political podcasts the whole language has has changed in a lot of ways. And that's had an impact on me as a listener and also, I think, as a participant. Do you like it? 
I has, do. Has it been fun? It, yes. Yes. Have you learned anything about yourself doing it? Um, I always learn about interviewing when I'm doing it. And, um, and it's a way of being kind of forced to focus your own thoughts, you know, to just c- kind of process things about your own life that you, maybe you haven't articulated. Because there's things you don't talk about on a day-to-day level because you're busy dealing with the day-to-day stuff. Yeah. Has listening to those shows and uh, listening to all these new interviewers, has it, do you think it's had an impact on your style at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think um, I've tried to become or I've allowed myself to become just like more conversational or from more of my point of view in like arts-oriented interviews. Um, I like that things are becoming, you know, like more casual. What are the shows you listen to? Well, I listen to... On the radio, I, <laughs> I listen to Morning Edition and All Things Considered. And on podcasts, I listen to a lot of stuff. I listen to your podcast, Long Form, which I think is great. Um, I listen to WTF, Mark Myron's podcast. I like listening to um, The Longest Shortest Time, which is uh, Hillary Frank's podcast about childbirth and being a parent. I'm not a parent, but... It's it's great radio. Um, there's this new podcast that I heard the first episode of called like Hilarious Depression or something. I don't think I heard it. Uh, it's brand new. I think I heard the first episode like a week or two ago, and um, Peter Sagal was the interviewee, and he talked the host of Wait Wait Don't Tell Me, and he talked all about his depression and his separation from his wife, and it was just like incredibly fascinating. Oh, yeah, and. Um, what else do I listen to? The Pub, which is a public radio podcast that's all about the inner workings of public radio. And you, if you want to hear what keeps public radio people up at night worrying, that's the podcast to listen to. I, I listen to This American Life and on the media, usually as podcasts. Uh, oh, uh, Michael Ian Black, it turns out, has a great podcast. Yeah, it's really good. It's really funny, and he's a, he's a great interviewer. Like, who knew? That Time story about you it kept referring to you as, like, the national interviewer. Do you think with the way that all this stuff is going and how spread out it's becoming and diffuse and everyone in the world has a podcast, um, do you think that anyone will be able to do that again? I'll put it this way. I think the days of like mass, mass media are probably over. Like when I was growing up and I grew up in the 50s and 60s, like there were five TV channels. There were the three broadcast channels and two UHF kind of channels. Actually, there was three. I was in New York, so there was five, nine, and 11, and in addition to the three networks. And like everybody was watching the same shows at the same time because there was like no other choice. And you'd watch shows that you hated just because like they were on, and you, you know, and you had to watch something because you had to watch TV. In the same way with the radio. There, there was like there were a few rock and roll radio stations, and you listened to them. Mm. And maybe you'd switch back and forth, but that was it. And there's so many choices now in everything in books and music and records and film and podcasts and radio. And and so it's great for variety, but I, I feel like mass media used to be the thing. Pop culture used to be the thing that brought us together, and it doesn't anymore because we're all on our own little separate 
wavelengths with that. You know, we're all listening to our own podcasts on our own schedule and watching our own DVDs or streaming on our own schedule or binging on our own schedule. And um, politics, I think, has become, you know, what what popular culture used to be in that respect because we're all paying attention to the same candidates and the same president at the same time and the same political debates. And um, granted, we're a divided nation, like incredibly divided, but we're divided over specific issues and candidates and politicians, and we know what the what those things are. You know, whereas a lot of people, I'll mention a show I'm watching, I know they won't have heard of it, mm-hmm. and vice versa. I know they're watching a show that is not on my radar at all. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a show like yours could happen now. I think it's hard for things to really get started now. I mean, it's easy anybody can start something, but getting an audience is hard unless you have a platform to jump off of. Like if you're starting a podcast and your first edition is on All Things Considered or This American Life, that's a great way to start. You're doing all right. But still, it's like the platform that you have feels unique to me. I'm so grateful to have it. Like, I keep thinking if I started at another time, you know, I started as a volunteer. And so knowing nothing and doing not a good job, I was able to still be on the air. If I had to be good when I started, I would have never been in radio in the first place. And if then was now, I never would have built an audience. I never would. I I, I mean, I, I feel so really lucky. Do you ever get bored? Um... No, because the people I interview and the subjects we do are so interesting. But um, no, what I find the most problematic, like the most difficult part of the show is like going home at night after a hard day and then just having to read a few hundred pages. <laughs> you know, It's just to, to like keep reading and taking notes when it's really time for bed. That's hard. I just wish I didn't have to ingest so much all the time because to make the show good I'm always like eating information I'm always like reading or watching or listening um and it'd be nice you know to just unplug a little bit more and process more and ingest less but that's the price you pay for having a daily show and you know apparently I'm willing to pay that price <laughs> how much longer do you think you'd be willing to pay it for I don't know I, I I'm still uh, I, I'm not seeing an end yeah I'm not looking at an end. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> I have a, a question. Uh, it's a very light topic. Uh, I want to talk about death for a second. Yeah. That's okay. Sure. Uh, it's not actually. A yeah. Go thing. death. Yeah, yeah. Just a happy, happy <laughs> kicker here with death. Um, it comes up so much mm-hmm. on on the show. It does. And I wonder. I don't think it could possibly come up on the show as much as it does if it was not a very present thing for you. And I wonder if you're comfortable with the idea of death. Some people are afraid of death. I'm not because I just see death as an end. But uh, what what frightens me is the suffering that so often precedes death. And I've, you know, I've seen people suffer at, at the end. But you're not actually scared of dying. No, I'm not looking forward to it. You, you know, I'd, I'd prefer living, but 
no, I, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of people in my life dying. Mm-hmm. I worry about that a lot. Have you always been as comfortable talking about it as you are? As an interviewer, yes, I think. But in real life, I try to let other people guide me. Like I had a friend a few years ago who was dying, and she didn't want to think that she was dying. And so I tried really hard not to talk to her about the fact that she was dying, and we all knew she was. And um, she actually said to me one day, um, sometimes I think about just taking a lot of pills and ending it. But I knew that she didn't mean that to open the door to a genuine conversation about death. She just needed to say that. So I, I, I couldn't really still talk with her about it. But what I, what I did say to her is like, you know, call hospice or something if you think, like get ways to help you feel more comfortable through the, I, I mean, I wasn't going to talk her out of that if that's what she wanted to do. But she was, I think, just like testing to see what, can, what else could she do. But but anyways, mostly she didn't really want to talk about death at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents didn't want to talk about death, even when they were dying. Um, so I found some comfort in talking about it with people who I've known who aren't <laughs> who aren't actively dying. That's interesting that you're able to find that restraint in talking to the people who are in your life, because it is such a striking thing about your show how often. You talk to people about dying on the air, you know, which is, a, I, I think, that a thing that people are pretty uncomfortable talking about. Not all people. A lot of people are very comfortable talking about it, like people who have written about it, people who think about religion a lot, people who have written memoirs or fiction or who have written or directed or acted movies about death. There's so much death in our culture. So much of culture revolves around death. Like, name me one TV show or movie or, you know what I mean, that isn't in some way about death religion it's all about death yeah it's all about what we do until we die and then how do we die when we get there you did an interview a couple years ago with Maurice Sendak um, and uh, you'd been talking to him sort of over the years I think you did four interviews with him total but this last one he wasn't well enough to leave his house and you called him on the phone Um, and it's incredible Oh, God, there are so many beautiful things in the world which I will have to leave when I die, but I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Well, listen. You know, I yeah. have to tell you something. Go ahead. You are the only person I have ever dealt with in terms of being interviewed or talking to who brings this out in me. There is something very unique and special in you, which I so trust. When I heard that you were going to interview me, I thought you wanted to. I was really, really pleased. Well, I'm really glad we got the chance to speak, because when I heard you had a book coming out, I thought, what a good excuse (laughs) (laughs) to call up Maurice Sendak and have a chat. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's what we always do, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's what we've always done. It is. Thank God we're still around to do it. Yes. And... uh, Almost certainly I'll go before you go, so I won't have to miss you. Oh, God, what a... S- <laughs> and, and I don't know whether I'll do another book or not. I might. It doesn't matter. I'm a happy old man, but I will cry my way all the way to the grave. <laughs> 
Well, I'm so glad you have a new book. I'm really glad we had a chance to talk. I am, too. And I wish you all good things. I wish you all good things. Live your life, live your life, live your life. Maurice Sendak's new book is called Bumble What I hadn't heard the first time I was listening to it, because now I was listening to it with the air that I was going to come talk to you, um, was how steady you are while he is... In tears. <laughs> yeah. And, and saying the most honest, beautiful, profound, emotional things almost a person can say. And then you would come in and you were so calm and so steady and not by any means, not there, not present, just calm. And I wondered listening to it, how you're capable of doing that. That interview, I think, was built on me having uh, done interviews with, with Maurice since the 70s or 80s. So we had done a bunch of interviews in the past. And so I think he brought a certain le level of trust and comfort to it. I had not planned on it being that interview. I had planned on, like, he had just written his first children's book in years. And I just wanted to give him a shout on the air since he couldn't make it to a studio and just say, hey, congratulations on the new book. That's so great. And just, you know, have four minutes at the end of the show, like, Fantastic, Maurice, new book. And he was just in this mood, I think, in this reflective mood. And I don't think I even did much to get him there. I think he was there and appreciated the opportunity to talk about what he was already thinking about. And so I just wanted to be there for him. And I was so moved by what he was saying. And and kind of speechless because I was completely unprepared for this outpouring of feeling about how, you know, looking back on all the deaths that had just happened in his life and knowing that he, he wasn't going to be living much longer and how he'd miss, like, you know, music and looking at the trees and all the beautiful things in the world. And then at the end he said, live your life, live your life, live your life. And that was just it was so beautiful. And I, I, you can hear me just saying hardly anything. I, you know, I, I really was as close to speechless as I've been throughout the entirety of an interview. But so you found a way to say something. Yes, because what he was saying was so beautiful. I mean, there's, um, yeah, I was just so moved. There was something else he kept saying, which was that he couldn't do that with anyone but you. Yeah, he did say that. I'm not sure that's true, but it meant the world to me that he said it. Why do you think that is? I mean, why do you think that people are so willing and comfortable and eager to talk to you about things that they wouldn't talk to anyone else about? I mean, if it's true, I don't know why it's true, and I think it would be presumptuous for me to say. One thing I can say is I think I try to go in to an interview actually knowing and caring about who the person is, hoping that 
Well, for two reasons. One is like, if you don't care, why, why talk to them? You know what I mean? If you don't value what they do, why bother? And also just knowing that the more I know, the more, I think the, the better the interview can be. And maybe that builds a certain level of trust that um, it's not like, well, I read your book jacket. And uh, according to the dust cover, this book is about, you know, because <laughs> everybody, everybody's had that kind of interview. Everybody who's been interviewed has experienced that. And it's, it's really no f- fun. That's why some people do need to bring talking points, because unless you interview yourself in that kind of interview, nothing's going to happen. So mostly you just have to, like, uh, give a shit. Well, it helps a lot. It, really, I wouldn't underplay the importance of that in doing an interview. What else do you think really matters? Listening, um, empathy, intuition, wondering, like, why did you? Why do you think that? Why did you say that? What did you experience when? I I think all the time about things that are transformative in people's lives, you know, and how it changed them, and. I think all the time about the difference between being sick and being well or, you know, being an athlete or being, you know, somebody who just stays home and reads all the time. There's so many different, like, personality types and physical types. And for each of us, like, we are who we are, but it's so interesting to figure out how other people are put put together. And I always learn something about myself when I talk to people who are either similar to me or different from me. And the way I relate to them depends. You know, like if they're similar to me, I'll use that to connect. And if they're different from me, I'll use that to connect. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't get, like I am so not like that. I don't get it. You actually have to explain it to me. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, explaining that to me. <laughs> I appreciate it. Terry, thank you for the time. Oh, thank you for doing this. I really admire your work. So it's a pleasure for me to be a part of your podcast. I'm trying to be better about taking compliments, so I'll just say thank you. <laughs> you are so well. looking you in the eye. Uh, really, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern, Courtney Harrell. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, Squarespace, and Blue Apron. And thanks very much to Terry Gross. That was uh, a real thrill. It was a genuine thrill to go down to Philadelphia and have that conversation. And uh, after we finished talking, we spent another, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour in the studio with uh, Molly C.V. Nesper on her staff, who really made this thing possible, and also Danny Miller, who's been uh, running Fresh Air with Terry for decades. And uh, I don't know. It was um, it was nice. It was just... Uh, It was a nice way to spend some time. So thanks to them. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. 
Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.